Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. And normally, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, fire, combustibles, flammables. Today, however, is a special episode. First of all, we are taping this live at Cal State Long Beach, which is hosting the West Coast Regional Meeting of the Intercollegiate Broadcasting System. They are dedicated to training the next generation of multimedia producers, editors, engineers, and hosts. Shout out to Intercollegiate Broadcasting, uh, and specifically KALX, the college radio station where I got my start. Second, today we're debuting a brand new miniseries theme, which is The Starting Five. And this came up spontaneously on one of our recent episodes. Actually, it aired this week with the poet Saul Williams, where he was talking about Portishead's dummy. Did you really we need yeah. to take a moment to just shout out um, five CD changers. They've come up a lot on Heat Rocks. And let's just take a few moments to just shout that out. That was Yo. an early tool of curation Yo. Uh, that people are really not up on. But it was about what, was, y- your yeah. starting five. It was about your starting five. It was such, I remember what I kept there for months, which was Portis said Dummy. I also had that release that they had done for the film. That came out before Dummy. They did, I don't remember the name of the film, but there's a, a sort of a, a EP okay. mm-hmm. that right. they put out before right, right. then with, with music for this film that they had done. And uh, so those two were there. And then there's um, Tricky, there's Bjork, and maybe, uh, is it Goldie or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Real quick, Morgan, to your point, the thing that I always liked about, and I, if I have to imagine we're talking about the same kind of five disc changer. So it's not the kind that has the vertical cassettes, but rather it's the, the carousel. Yeah, yeah. It's the carousel. And when it comes out, it, it's already spinning. And something about the yep. aesthetic of that, I never had one of those, but I always loved just seeing oh, yeah. that. Super cool. It was. It, it was really was. Cool. Shout out to whoever like, invented yeah. that. Maybe Shout it was Sony, out. whatever. But yeah. Shout out. It was, a, it was a great design. They were awesome. Of course, the, the feature that was awesome was Shuffle. Yes. Oh, my God. Right? Instant jukebox. Yeah. I mean, if it hadn't been, I think, for for CDs and CD changers, I don't think I would have invested as much time in listening. Because once you committed mm. to putting your CDs in the changer, you didn't touch that thing. That's You, you <laughs> put in your five, yep. and if you put it on shuffle, you don't touch that thing. Yep. And then you hear those songs, you hear, you know, these are the 90s, we're talking about interludes and, yeah. and, and, and intros and all that stuff was important, the liner notes. Yep. And if you've gone through all that you had to go through to unwrap a CD, you got to listen to the whole thing. If yeah. you pull that plastic yeah, yeah, off, you definitely listen to the whole thing. <clears throat> you got to commit to it. Morgan, for the benefit of those who have never seen a CD player, which is increasingly often, I would assume, what made the five disc changer so memorable? I think one is that it gave you autonomy. Uh, This gave you freedom to be a curator before we started using the word curator because it was really your choice of which five CDs were going to go in the carousel. It spun around so it was sort of cool looking. Uh, Those with with bigger budgets than my own had had the digital display so you could see, you know, the printout of the title. And also, too, you had the shuffle function. So you could really set the tone for your you know, your adventures at the house. And so before we started developing playlists, I think five CD changers gave you the ability to create your own playlist, and it was just cool. It wasn't, first they came out with the one CD changer, so that was already lit, and then they went to three, and by five, it was like, well, damn, I'm a DJ now. So it gave you that freedom. 
Now, the starting five is a term that we have, of course, borrowed from basketball, referring to the first five, the first five players that you start a game with. And they're supposed to be, the idea behind the starting five is they are either the ideal complement to one another in terms of skill set, or maybe they're just the best five players you have available. When it comes to a musical starting five, how do you approach that philosophically? I think, I think thematically is a good place to start, and you can either do that by genre um, or year, or in, in some cases in region. And I think it's sort of a cool thing if you just want to do 90s hip-hop, right. or you just want to do um, fusion if you're doing jazz, or you just want to do swing, or you just want to do like alt-country. I think it's great to throw those things together unless you're doing something historical. And in that case, it's great to take a block of time, uh, 90 to 2000 hip-hop or, yeah. or 90s R&B. Yeah. Well, we did need some kind of prompt to orient our starting five picks around. And one of the other theme ideas that Morgan and I had been batting around for a while was to do a series of, of episodes devoted to different regions, musical regions of the U.S., North, East, South, and West. And in honor of the West Coast Regional Meeting of the Intercollegiate Broadcasting System, we decided to kick off this new mini-series with our starting five West Coast albums. And Morgan, why don't we start with your starting five. How did you go about tackling this? What was your methodology? Well, you know, I wanted to explore the sort of alternative and future soul sound of L.A. When Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly came out, people were talking about how it sort of was like a collision of disparate sounds. And it wasn't a collision of disparate sounds. It was a collision of the sound of, of independent music in L.A., which is jazz and hip-hop and beats and R&B. All those things were present on the album. And a lot of it started in the really early 2000s, but it peaked in 2008, all centralized around uh, a prolific sort of tastemaker named Norman Mayers and his club that was called New Soul and New Soul Magazine. And so a lot of the artists that I picked in my starting five came out of this scene, which peaked in 2008. So what was number one? Number one was Thundercat, mm. uh, the golden age of the apocalypse that came out in 2011. Uh, when you talk about the indie soul scene in L.A., you cannot talk about it without talking about Thundercat, who not only had his own output, but he showed up on everybody else's. Sarah Creative Partners, Flying Lotus, uh, Georgia Ann Muldrow, Erica Badu, he was there. And so when you think about before he was known as Thundercat, he was behind the scenes sort of playing his songs and doing his thing and adding weight to the features. And so it's great that people are now getting to know him, but he's been doing this for a really long time. Right. And he's a bass player, so that's probably why he was on so many other albums, because he's doing bass session work for he, these He folks. is a bass player, heavily influenced by George Duke. He's part of a musical family. His father, Ronald, uh, played, in, played for Gladys Knight, played for The Temptations, and was part of a disco fusion band called Chameleon uh, that released an album in 79 on Electra. What song should we hear off the Thundercat, Thundercat album? Oh man. Walking. What I like about uh, Thundercat's albums is they add a lot of heavy weight to instrumentation that typically, you know, we've moved away from on R&B albums. When you put on any of Thundercat music, 
you know immediately this is a bass player who also sings, who also produces. But at the heart of everything is, is bass. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with um, him coming up in a musical family. All of his family plays. And one of his brothers is one of the extended members of, of the internet. He's got another brother that's a drummer. So you hear heavy instrumentation when people talk about R&B getting away from live instruments and bands. All that stuff is present on his albums. Uh, he's also a cool, you know, he's a cool musician. I saw him play once actually at Royce Hall and he had like a long, like Rick James wig on. He had like a, a bullet belt. He had some crazy, like some shorts, some cra I mean, it was just really ill. And so it forced you to listen to the music. It's not a studio construct, it's not an image. This is a, a man that uh, puts everything into his, into his, you know, into his music. And this album was a revelation. It was on a lot of tastemakers lists. And it just is. Seasons is another good song on there. And he brings with him a bunch of musicians. He's also signed to Brain Feeder. So it, it stands to reason that he's a little bit on the alternative and abstract side. Yeah. And speaking of Brain Feeder, your number two is really the heart of Brain Feeder, you could argue. Uh, yeah. Flying Lotus, who uh, founded uh, the Brain Feeder label, he is a part of the beat scene. And as I was saying, the sound of Los Angeles music in the early aughts and even today is a mix of a lot of things. R&B, hip-hop, soul, jazz, and also beats. Uh, Shlomo, a Gas Lamp Killer, um, Susie Analog, um, all these people that really believed in the philosophy that it's fine to be genre agnostic. We're going to put a whole bunch of things and we're going to call it whatever we want to call it. And the architect of that is Flying Lotus, who's related to Alice Coltrane, um, who's got a lot of jazz, free jazz in his background, and this shows up. But he's also to us the father of beats. And I picked his album that came out this year uh, called Flamagra. Anderson Pack came out of this scene that I'm talking about in this club night. He was then known as Breezy Lovejoy. And all of the kids that performed you know, at this club night were super independent. None of them were signed. Some of them had EPs on, on SoundCloud and early band camp then. And he was just one of those kids that really showed early promise. But Flying Lotus showed up everywhere. I mean, all of his albums, I think, are a love letter to LA, including the album Los Angeles. Prolific, he's a composer. Um, Get into his discography if you're not aware of it, and you'll see everything that I'm talking about. It, you can't call it one thing except experimental, which would yeah. be fair to say about it. Yeah. Number three. I'm so biased because L.A. is my hometown. I could have just done the West, but I just didn't uh, <laughs> because I'm from L.A., and this is my hometown. So uh, the area of town I live in is called the Miracle Mile or the Fairfax, so I had to bring up the Internet. Mm. Um, I'm obsessed with Odd Future and everybody connected uh, with Odd Future. I didn't go to Fairfax High School, but I live very close. I'm always in that area hanging out and shopping. And the internet is what um, Fairfax High would sound like if it was a record. Mm. And I loved everybody in the band. Uh, Matt Martian, Sid, Steve Lacey, and uh, even Thundercat showed up on a few of these things. Um, they had many, many talents. Could rap, could sing. I mean... R&B needed a band, and here came the internet, which are like the cool kids that aren't too cool for school, but the kids that you wanted to hang out with that also made music. 
Um, I don't know which song you want to play on here, but I picked their album Ego Death from 2015. It's to me, it was a perfect album. Oliver and I met on KPCC, we did a segment called Tuesday Reviews Day, where we'd pick three albums that we thought you guys should buy, and we bonded over the internet because we both liked this band. Not Drake, though. We, we, we stood yeah. apart on Drake we, we together on the internet. Yeah, we, we have issues with Drake. Um, he divides us. <laughs> uh, but the internet we bonded on because we felt like then, not now, but then it didn't seem like people outside of L.A. were really talking much about the band. Now that's changed. Yeah. But... In their early career, it was just us that were talking about us, L.A.-based radio DJs um, and tastemakers. I'm not going to say that the internet aged better than someone, let, let, let's say, compared to like Tyler, because I mean, Tyler is having his career is fantastic right now. But I do think that when they were originally introduced as being part of the Odd Future family, which at the time was... It was Tyler, it was Earl Sweatshirt, Frank Ocean on the periphery, the internet. The internet almost seemed a little bit like the Odd Kids Out, which is right. weird to say because that whole crew is way eclectic. Sure. But I think as time has gone by and you've seen how they've matured with it, I mean, they are really such, they have such a tight sound. All of their solo projects have been, I think, really rich, but they, yeah. they still get back together and, and they still have that ineffable sound. Absolutely. We are was best friends It all came to an end And things change one day I hope you realize I tried I tried, I tried, I tried, girl, I tried. Number four. Oh, man. L.A. again. Uh, this time, Inglewood. I went with Iman Omari and his album, um, Energy, uh, 2011. Um, I fell in love with him, his music on the title track. Said What I like about your choices so far is that each of them, each of these artists have their own particular sound and personality, but you can also hear how they play really well together. And obviously, they all come out of this broader musical community here in Los Angeles. And I think what really strikes me about your starting five is that it really opens the listener into what is very much a living scene here in, yeah. in L.A. Yeah, it, it is a living scene. Um, they say about uh, the West Coast uh, that we collaborate on the West Coast. They compete on the East Coast. And I think this scene, a lot of these people, a lot of these artists have showed up on other artists in the Starting Five catalog. Um, we're, like I said earlier, we're not wed to any genre. We work together. And all these artists are indie. And in my line of work, um, I like to pull heavily from this community for placements, um, to have in the box. Iman Omari came uh, and sat with us on Heat Rocks to talk about another L.A. artist that I almost picked uh, called Jay Davey. Mm -hmm. 
If you're looking up Iman Omari, if you're not familiar with him, get into his discography. He's closely linked with Tiffany Goucher, who's another um, LA-based artist and an artist named Sir, who's got an album out this year called Chasing Summer, which is really good. My last, uh, last but not least, is uh, also out of the scene. Uh, her name is Georgia Ann Muldrow. And I picked an album going back to 2006, which I think was prime time for this scene, called Olesi, Fragments of an Earth. She is also the daughter of a jazz musician. Pretty much everyone that I've mentioned, all these artists are children of musicians. Um, her father was a prolific um, jazz instrumentalist, and she is a triple threat. She sings, uh, she makes beats, and she plays. And this album was a revelation. It is like a... All of her output is like, you know, a sound bath. I listen to the birds sweetly sing out that the time is now. Calling on the strength of the palm trees, Babylon must fall down. But where do I begin? When you look in the credits of her album, you know, a lot of it is, is Georgia because she does everything. She makes the beats. She arranges the harmonies. She sings lead and background vocals. It's interesting that, um, you know, a, a lot of this L.A. scene is getting attention now. I think that happens in a lot of genres, but this scene and these artists that I've mentioned have been doing it for a really long time, so I'm happy to see their shine. There's a great video, if you can find it on YouTube, of her um, reworking uh, a Dilla song and simply untitled. And it's her from start to finish, sort of like making the beat. She's got her baby in her lap. She takes, takes the song and adds, you know, adds chords to it, adds her vocals, adds, adds her hand claps. So if you want to see just how prolific she is as an artist, find that video. And that'll add weight to all the things that I'm saying about her. I can't do uh, her enough justice. But th that would be my starting five. For me, it starts in L.A. and it ends in L.A. I'm biased. So perhaps befitting my day job as a professor of popular culture right here at Cal State Long Beach, I went with a historical angle in terms of how I picked my starting five. But before I, want, before I go in, we just have to acknowledge that though the prompt here was West Coast, Morgan, you and I both ended up going with primarily Los Angeles artists <laughs> and albums. And as someone who lived in the Bay Area for a really long time, I feel kind of bad about this in hindsight, but I didn't really think about it going in. And, um, but again, as, as you pointed out in the first half, such is our bias, because we're it. both from here, we both live here. Um, and maybe we can do a bonus episode of non-LA West Coast picks. <laughs> but anyways... As I said, I went with a more of a historical approach, and I wanted to pick an album from different eras that I think represent different times in L.A. musical history. And I had to begin with the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band and their first great album, Together, from 1968. And the Watts 103rd is best known for their one mega-hit, Express Yourself, which was recorded in 1970, but their importance and influence goes way beyond their chart success. Uh, band leader Charles Wright pulled together what I think is one of the greatest teams of musicians ever assembled on the West Coast. And musicians like drummer James Gadson and trombonist Al McKay, just to plug two members of the group, 
would go on to be pivotal to the sound of later 70s artists, including Bill Withers and Earth, Wind and & Fire and countless, countless others. It's, it's really hard to encapsulate just how prolific almost every member of that 103rd Street Rhythm Band would go on to become over the next uh, decades. Mm-hmm. Together was not the first album that was released by the group, but it was the first album with the lineup that would stick together until the group disbanded in the early 70s. And I think pound for pound, it has the tightest set list of any of their LPs. And my favorite song off of Together is A Dance, A Kiss, and A Song, which is one of the few tracks that does not feature band leader Charles Wright on the vocals, but instead it's drummer Jaden Gadsden who has... Uh, the, his turn on the mic, and Gadsden was was a very was actually a surprisingly solid vocalist, mm-hmm. and released a couple of solo singles later in the seventies. But this is a dance, a kiss, and a song off of the Watts One Hundred Third Street Rhythm Bands together. Pretty, pretty, pretty baby wants to change her mind. She said that you're the long lost lover that she left behind. So are you gonna let her come on home? I don't have to think about that. You know what I'm gonna tell her? I said, baby, a first bus. And you know this is from back in the day because the horn section is super prominent. Yeah. <laughs> right, we've talked a lot about the show. Like, where did the horns go? And I think the answer is Mitty. Mitty killed the horns, but uh, such as it is. I like this pick. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you picked pick this band, I think that when people talk about the development of jazz in this country, um, they don't mention the West Coast as often as they should. And the West Coast has had a very vibrant jazz scene. Right. Uh, from this area to Lamert Fifth Street Dicks, uh, we just had on the show the Watts Prophets, they talked about, uh, Father Amdi talked about a lot about how jazz was so important uh, to, to their creative output. Uh, that they really married hip-hop and jazz, early hip-hop and jazz, around the time that Oliver's mentioning. So, um, you know, with respect to both of our biases uh, around this area of California, I'm glad that you brought this pick up. Yeah. So my next pick, disc number two, we move it up to 1974, and Shuggy Otis's mm-hmm. Inspiration Information, which I think is just a truly sublime album that a lot of people rediscovered in 2001 when it was finally reissued, having been largely forgotten for the previous quarter century. And Shuggy was, or is, because he's still alive, he's the son of legendary Los Angeles musician and promoter Johnny Otis. And Shuggy has had no less of an eclectic career compared to his father. Uh, he cut his teeth growing up as a teenager, playing for uh, everyone from R&B saxophonist Preston Love to blues guitarist Al Cooper to band leader, songwriter, rock, songwriter and all-around wild man Frank Zappa. <laughs> Inspiration Information was Shuggy's third solo album, and it achieves what I describe as a kind of languid perfection, which is to say that it is it has this wonderfully laid-back feel and groove to it, but you would never confuse it for yacht rock or anything quite so so milk toast. Everything off of this album just feels good. What happened? What had it been shelved? Or in terms, I think, I think. Well, for one, this was Shuggy's last album for I think seven years. I think mm-hmm. it really was his last solo album until 
2018. Oh, wow. Original material. He okay. re-released um, stuff from the vaults uh, in, in the years after that. But he more or less kind of disappeared from recording as his own as under his own name for the for the remainder of the 70s and much of the 80s. Really? And so I think that's partly why he was forgotten. This album was forgotten. But when it came back in 2001, I'd already been listening to it prior to that because I'm cool like that. But <laughs> I was just amazed at how so many people gravitated to it. And it made sense because it is such a phenomenal, as I was saying earlier, it's a phenomenal end-to-end album. You can needle drop on any point in this album. Or I guess shuffle play if we're going with the CD changer that's metaphor. It. That's it. And you will land on gold. Like it's it's a perfect album in that respect. And he is revered uh, all across. I mean, all across the country and everywhere. But L.A. He is precious to L.A. Um, to us, he is the the sound of L.A. soul, early L.A. soul. Uh, one of the godfathers um, of this type of sound. So. And I do think of him as a Bay Area person too, because at the time in which I discovered him, he was living in the North Bay of the sure. Bay, and so I forgot that he recorded, I think, the entire album in Los Angeles. That's where he grew up, but he does have a Bay connection in that respect. We'll give him that. Yes, there we go. Disc number three. I would slip in Patrice Russian's "Straight from the Heart" from 1982, and I, you know, I have to admit, I'm kind of biased here because I just wrote the liner notes to the reissue for this album, uh, which will be coming out later this winter. I got to interview Patrice for it. She was incredible. Uh, but really, all that aside, I don't think you could ask for a more perfect example of early '80s post-disco R&B that features just an absolute murderer's row of West Coast musicians and songwriters that are all brought together to the genius that was Patrice Russian of this era. There, there, I think there's a reason why so much of this album has been sampled. It's because it invokes these intense feelings of nostalgia for people who grew up listening to hits off of this, like Forget Me Nots, and really my favorite song off of here, Remind Me. had those incredible braids back then that you Still. saw in her album covers yeah, yeah. and every time I listen to her I just can see her in her videos just with those braids like swinging back and forth indeed this is a this is for me this is classic material I grew up on this it reminds me of how great um, 80s R&B is and how great uh, radio LA radio was in the 80s um, Patrice Russian um, you know, bodied that decade. She's also a composer. She's been featured on other things. She's a, a prolific pianist and composer. Um, this singer, is, songwriter, this is everything. And I mean, a lot of a lot of singers of this time sort of fell to the side. But Patrice is still standing. I heard a a, a great uh, a great house remix of Forget Me Nots, and this was in the late '90s. At, you know, at a club, I was uh, uh, younger uh, then. <laughs> <laughs> when, I heard, when, when I heard that, but Patrice Russian revered um, from right here in LA. She went to Dorsey High School. Lock High School. Lock High School. Lock High School. Yeah. One of the best things to come out of the scene. And uh, is Settle for My Love on this album? Is this Settle for My Love? Oh, I should know this, having just is written it? the lighter notes. I think that was from her previous one, but I might, okay. I, I might just embarrass myself right here and, and, and have this wrong. That's my, one of my favorite, favorite, besides uh, Remind Me, Settle for My Love, one of my favorite Patrice Russian tracks. Yeah. For disc number four, this was the toughest one because I knew I wanted to go with some kind of seminal West Coast hip-hop album, but 
it's deciding between which one. Was it going to be Straight Outta Compton by NWA? Was it going to be Dr. Dre's The Chronic? Uh, could have been a Tupac or Digital Underground LP. And I ended up picking an album that I simply had spent the most time bumping, which was Ice Cube's The Predator from 1992. And while I know The Predator was not heralded as much as either of the two albums that preceded it, America's Most Wanted and Death Certificate, The Predator came out on November 17th, 1992. So it turns 27 years old tomorrow mm. on the date that we're recording here. And because it came out in the uh, late fall of 92, it meant that it, the album came out and Cube had opportunities to record at least some of the songs after the LA uprising of April 1992, which means that Cube got to take a bit of a bittersweet victory lap by, <laughs> by being able to say on this album, I told y'all this was gonna happen, none of you listen to me and see what happened, which he does. He does take a couple of victory laps. I also think what makes The Predator stand out to me is it's the last album that Cube put out before The Chronic, I think just utterly reshaped the sound of West Coast hip hop. And I think Cube's subsequent albums suffered, at least to some extent, from trying to sound a little too G-funk. Um, even though I think the big hit off of The Predator, It Was a Good Day, was really part of the blueprint for how, at least the feel of what Dre and folks like Warren G, uh, we're trying to achieve as they develop that G-Funk sound. I picked up the cash flow. Then we played bones. And I'm yelling domino. Plus nobody I know got killed in South Central LA. Today was a good day. Morgan, we have actually never talked about an Ice Cube album on the show yet. Do you have a favorite? America's Most Wanted. Probably mine. Um, I love political woke Ice Cube, although um, I love some ignorance in there too. Yep, there, yeah, there little is mix. Little a little mix. bit. There's a little bit. He was conflicted yeah. and misusing his influence. That's a nice but, way to put it. Uh, thank you, <laughs> but I think this particular album, this particular song, is L.A. in a nutshell. It is the sleepy sample based, although it's the Isley Brothers. Yeah. Um, this song will always be precious to me because of the video and watching Ice Cube navigate a day in LA, which you think is gonna end crazy, but it doesn't. Um, I think you, have, you make an excellent point about how the sound changes. we got closer to the chronic. Yeah. No, no less sample-based, but, but different. Right. Um, and what's the, first, what's the first G thing? Was, the first, was our introduction to Snoop the first video? Uh, either that or Deep Cover. I don't know if Deep Cover had a video, though, but the G, G thing video was a game changer. was a game changer, but it seems a lot like Good Day as we go with Snoop throughout totally. his day. Right. It's a look at L.A., and that's what I love about uh, this album and this song. Yeah. It's ironic. I had the boo, she had the chronic. The Lakers beat the supersonic. I felt on the big fat fanny. Pulled out the jammy and killed the poop nanny. And my dick runs deep, so deep. So for the last, the last fifth disc slot, um, I had to go with the Kendrick Lamar album, uh, partly because I think he's the most important artist to have come out of LA in the last 15 years. And really, besides him and Frank Ocean, there's no other artist that I would be more hyped to hear new music from. Mm. Um, to Pimp a Butterfly from 2015 is my favorite Kendrick album. But I think 2012's Good Kid, Mad City is his best album, uh, an album where the songs collectively, to me, will stand the test of time. And you can play 
you know, swimming pools or money trees right now in 2019, and it'll still sound, I think, as fresh as it did uh, when the album first came out. But that said, those, those two excellent songs aside, for pure mean face excitement, I gotta go with Backseat Freestyle, which is one of those songs that I've always wanted to drop during a wedding DJ set, but uh, still haven't. Kendrick have a dream. All my life I want money and power, respect my mind or die from less shout. I pray my dick get big as the Eiffel Tower, so I can fuck the world for 72 hours. Goddamn, I feel amazing. Damn, I'm in the matrix. My mind is living on cloud nine and this nine is never home. Um, I love the aesthetic of To Pimp a Butterfly. Yeah. I love songs like King Kunta. I love All Right. I love that it's become an, uh, an anthem. I feel like uh, Good Kid, Mad City is where I got to know I'm Kendrick. It's where I got to be like, oh, he's nice. Like, he's real nice with it. So it's hard for me to pick, but I love this. And I think this is the album with Anna Wise, uh, Anna Wise on it, which was introduction to, for a lot of people, to Anna Wise and the talent of Anna Wise. Right, right. No, it's a tough choice. And I think, uh, you know, to Pimp versus Good Kid, I mean, that's kind of like, I don't know what, Purple Rain versus 1999 right. or something like that. Why'd you put me in that position, man, if you knew it was going to be tough like that? Because I, I wanted to see how you'd respond. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> So Morgan, I think one of the tough things, I don't know how you encountered this, I certainly did, is that in choosing our starting five, it means ultimately you got to cut out some discs, right? You got to push some albums to the bench yeah. uh, or what I'm describing as the Lou Williams Award for best, you know, six <laughs> disc uh, uh, in the set. And so uh, I asked uh, each of us to pick, you know, what was the one that missed the cutoff? And I'll leave this one off. And the one disc that I would have slipped in if they had made six CD changers, but that just seems ridiculous, like five is enough, uh, it would have been Farside's second album, Lab Cabin California, which came out in 1995. And I know a lot of Farside fans don't like it as much as their debut. Oh, Bizarre Ride. Uh, compared to Bizarre Ride. But I actually think Lab Cabin California has aged really, really well. And partly why I would have included it in the mix is because I think the far side has always represented a different side of West Coast hip hop. It was more quirky, it was nerdier, it was certainly more vulnerable uh, and weird, uh, sort of like what De La Soul represented to New York and East Coast uh, hip hop of that same era. In this album, Lab Cap in California, which very heavily incorporated the influence of Jay Dilla, who you mentioned earlier, has this just marvelous and melancholy feel to it. The album feels more grown. It also feels more cynical and sad, but I think that's also what I connect with, especially as I get older. So who would have been your sixth pick? I was torn on this, man. I almost went with uh, Jay Davey, The Beauty and Distortion. That was going to be my first pick uh, because we jokingly called Jay Davey the Black Eurythmics. Uh, that's what they represented to, to us, the Black mm. 80s. Mm. Um, they had a lot of things in the mix. But I went with Anderson Pack, uh, partly because I, of what I mentioned, his evolution. He's always been this brilliant. He's always been this prolific. Um, Oliver and I have talked a lot about um, drummers that become singers, but are prolific drummers. He's one of them. Mm. And I love how all of his albums are named after parts of California. So I picked Ventura. And ooh, that was hard, but ooh, here we are. And it's easier to walk away.
He sings and he rhymes like someone that's got a percussive background. You hear the beats and everything that he does. I like this album because there's a lot of features on here. Put a lot of R&B on here. Layla Hathaway is on here. He's got a lot of production elements that I think are are a part of my starting five. So he never, to me, he's always indie, even though he's a big, big star now. But you never lose that indie sense. And again, um, like a lot of singers that we talk about on Heat Rocks, he's got drumming in his background. And I just love the shout to L.A. Um, I think he could do, he could go a lot of places after this if he decided to just rap. I think he'd have a great rap album. Um, Oxnard is another one of my favorite albums. I don't want to have to pick between Oxnard and Ventura, but I love Ventura, if I can say that. I'm just wondering if he just has, he's going to try to make an album for every neighborhood. Like, there would be a Sun Valley, there would be, a, like, the Hunga, you know. <laughs> Long Beach. There you go. Gotta be. Gotta be. Shout out to Long Beach. Well, that will do it for this special Starting Five episode of Heat Rocks, recorded live at Cal State Long Beach as part of the Intercollegiate Broadcasting System West Coast Regional Meeting. We want to thank Danny Lemos and the 22 West crew here at Cal State, uh, and as, as well as our great studio audience. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.